Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Hope for Chronic Pain podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Katinka Vandermeer. Dr. Katinka grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, as the daughter of a successful chiropractic doctor. She followed in her father's footsteps and graduated from Parker College of Chiropractic in 1999. She has since gained a reputation for developing a novel, non-invasive treatment system for neurologic rehabilitation of chronic pain, resulting in breakthroughs for even the most hopeless and severe cases. Her and her team have gained international attention due to their unprecedented success rates in these cases. Kent State University is slated to be involved with the first study of her work starting this year. She is an international speaker and best-selling author of three books, Putting Out the Fire, Taming the Beast, and Wake Up, Miracles of Healing from Around the World. Dr. Katinka practices in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and is the CEO of the Spiro Clinic. The Only Guarantee for Failure is to Stop Trying by John Maxwell. You are listening today to learn how to fight for your own recovery. Welcome to our podcast. I have the honor of interviewing Doug Lindsay today. Doug Lindsay has spent the last two decades investigating and tackling rare, complicated medical conditions, first in himself and his family, and now through his personal medical consultant service. Doug has been featured by People Magazine, TED, and CNN. An innovator, Doug partners with clients and experts to make new things happen. He works to get clients who are stuck in the medical system unstuck. To aid him in his work, he strives to understand healthcare from all levels of organization, from the individual to health systems, public health, and global health. Doug's dogged determination to chase down answers to an individual's complex problems makes him a special asset as a teammate and a personal medical consultant. Doug, welcome. You are clearly very passionate about not giving up on patients, and usually a passion such as yours starts with a big why. Can you tell me what your why is? Yeah, thank you for having me, Dr. K. My why certainly starts with my family. I mean, I grew up and my mother and aunt both suffered from chronic illnesses with no diagnoses and they were badly afflicted. I mean, I used to, when I would go out as a kid and get ready to go shoot, you know, hoops at my neighbor's house, I would stop by my aunt's every day during the summer and tie her shoes. And for someone who's in her, her late thirties or early forties, that's, that's quite a level of debility. I mean, my mom was in a position where you know, she couldn't open the front door of our house. And certainly by the time I was in college, she was barely able to hold a pen. And so they had muscle rigidity that was, you know, not responsive to any of the conventional treatments. And everything else was just a, a big mystery. And so it was evidently apparent that they were as sick as they said they were. But that didn't yield any answers or any particularly effective treatments my mom had been a math and, and science double major in college. She'd been a math and chemistry double major, and she was an artist. And she got her records together at one point to go to the Mayo Clinic and was too sick to travel there. And she sort of just started reading through her records. And she found that she had a thyroid problem that had been missed there's two ways you can have a thyroid problem. One is at the gland itself, and the other is either at the hypothalamus or the pituitary. 
and those show up where you can have a normal thyroid blood level reading, but they dropped over the years. It was still in the normal range, but the body was unable to call for more and to say, I need more from the gland. So she was able to correlate that by going through years of records. And that's something that even just that is uh, not that common in the medical system. It's a little better now that you have digital records where you can bring up past results of a test with the current results of a test. But, you know, for my mom, she ended up diagnosing the family with the thyroid conditions. And that left in me the belief that maybe you could find something and that maybe the doctors had missed something. And so, you know, when I got sick at 21, which I did, I got sick and I spent the next 11 years homebound and bedbound. And I also had the same condition they had, which means I began with no diagnosis and no answers. And I had to work through the system, figure out what was wrong, get diagnosed, then figure out what to do, find doctors to work with, find people who were willing to, to think a little bit outside the box or even partner with a patient and, you know, go through this whole process where I went from being a normal college kid to spending 22 hours a day in a hospital bed and, uh, you know, in my 20s, in my living room, in a hospital bed. And so this journey was the only life I had. I'd begun looking into what might be wrong with my mom because I was going to be a biochemistry major and, and probably go into that as a profession, you know, before I got sick. But then it became my fight, too. And so when I got diagnosed, I was able to get my mom and my aunt diagnosed with autonomic problems as well with, you know, if you have dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, it's called dysautonomia. And so I was able to get us diagnosed with dysautonomias. And then, you know, from there we dug further. I was able to develop new uses for five existing prescription drugs. And I partnered with the autonomic researcher who was at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And he and I together were able to figure out what was going on. It involved the center of my adrenal glands. And I ended up in a position where there was a chance a surgery would help me, but no good surgery existed. So I ended up developing a surgery from an animal model of surgery and finding a team to do it. And it sort of took me from wheelchair to walking. So that's sort of a long answer. The why fell on me, you know, I, I, through love of family and then through you know, misfortune of, of health myself, I lived a life in which plenty of doctors and, and the medical system in total had largely given up on my family many times. And the way I was able to succeed was to be able to pick up the football and run it a couple yards forward until we could re-engage with the medical system. Where they would get stuck is where I would start taking over and eventually I was able to work through the hurdles that we faced. And that was the process that I ended up taking to go from wheelchair to walking, to go from being too sick to walk. For 11 years, I was able to throw a snowball further than I could walk. And after the surgery on my adrenal glands and adjusting some of the medications, I was able to, you know, leave the house and walk for a couple of miles. We got the second surgery because there are two adrenal glands and, and, and that one took me the rest of the way, provided the rest of the medications were in balance. 
but basically my why for for why I don't give up on 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 patients and medical conditions is in a sense this is these are the hands that we have and there's no other hope in this that you know you don't get to just opt out if people could put their disease on a shelf and and resume a normal life everyone would when nature or whatever has happened chooses you you can keep endeavoring to try to figure out what's going on and get better or you can give up but there's no payoff to giving up so you know we persevere sometimes because that's the path in front of us that holds some chance for hope so Doug, this is an amazing story and I feel like you're downplaying it a little bit. You've probably told it a thousand times, but let me recap. You literally invented the surgery that saved your own life and then you had to go find a doctor that was willing to do a surgery that has never been done before and that really could have not turned out well. So the doctor was undergoing a huge risk, I'm assuming. Yeah, that's right. So I ended up in a unique spot where there are non-cancerous tumors that often that sometimes appear on the adrenal gland and they release adrenaline into the blood and adrenaline is very powerful. So so a hormone out of control is a catastrophe. And I didn't have one of those tumors, but I had something similar. And we hoped that if we could remove the tissue that was releasing too much adrenaline, that my physiology would start to right itself and that I would get healthier than, than, you know, bed bound 22 hours a day and with your heart racing and the room spinning and sweating and such. And so the problem was there was no surgery to take out the middle of the adrenal gland, but leave the outside. The, the adrenal gland is two different tissues and they do different things. And so we need steroid hormones to live, like cortisol, and those come from the outside of the adrenal gland. And so the only surgeries that existed that were to remove the whole gland on either side. There were ways to remove just part of the gland, but the description was it was like taking a slice of pizza, whereas, for example, I needed to take the yolk out of the center of the egg. You can certainly imagine in your mind that taking a slice of pizza, that procedure is not what you would use to take the yolk out of the egg and leave the white behind. So I needed a surgery that would take the middle of the adrenal gland out and leave the outside, or I would get a new disease. So working with doctors and under the premise of do no harm, we knew that if we pulled both of my adrenal glands that I would get a new disease, but we couldn't prove that I would get better from the one I had. And so that was a real challenge as much as it was a technical challenge to figure out a surgery that would help me. It was an ethical and a practice-based challenge to overcome as well because the doctors could guarantee that if we took both adrenal glands, I would have a new disease. They couldn't guarantee I would get better from the one I had. And so developing the surgery to take out the middle gave them a chance to say, we can potentially help this person without harming them. And I ended up finding animal models of surgery that were aimed at doing this. See, we've learned a lot about physiology from studying animals. We've learned about the heart. We've learned about this. We've learned about that. And so I turned to animal models of surgery because there was a chance that people had wanted to study what happens to the body 
if it has no adrenal medulla, if it has no adrenaline. And they have. They've studied blood sugar and body temperature, a host of other things. But that meant that there was a reason for these animal researchers, for physiologists who were studying animal models to have developed this surgery. And the challenge was then finding out how they did it and seeing if we could translate the, what had been successful in rats, cats, rabbits, monkeys, and dogs into a human surgery. And all of this information was lost to medical knowledge. You, there was no doctor in the country walking around with an understanding of these surgeries having been done because they were done initially in the 1920s and they tra trailed off by the 1960s. So if you graduated medical school in 1970, you might have been practicing for 40 years, but you're too young to remember these surgeries. So I ended up finding an animal model of surgery that was first done in 1923, which is the year before The Great Gatsby was published. And mm -hmm. we were able to take that to the human surgeons and demonstrate the feasibility of doing the surgery that takes out the middle of the adrenal gland. And why that was so important is we now had a clinical reason to pursue that, that the middle of my adrenal gland was believed to be an imaging and, and testing data supported why I was suffering. So Doug, when patients have chronic problems, um, they often run into a healthcare system that is uh, less than helpful, less than hospitable. And I know you work with some really ill patients. What do you perceive as some of the biggest problems with our current medical system? Well, it's one of the most useful things anyone ever told me is I was working with a biochemistry professor, just talking about the medical system and research and things to try and get a feel for how to engage with it. And he said, and, and there are plenty of definitions, but he said, the job of a practicing physician is to treat as many patients as possible with the means and methods available. And he said, if you have something else, it might be the realm of research medicine. That was him as a researcher. But it's really important to understand that the medical community is engaged with treating things that they already have an understanding of how to treat. So just as when you go to the pharmacy, they're not conceiving of new drugs at your local Walgreens. Right. When you go to the doctor, they are not, you know, to an MD, their task is not to reinvent the wheel or to do anything new. Their task is to take what others have done and apply it to your circumstance. And that works fine often. The challenge is if someone has a rare condition or a complicated condition, now what often works might not. And then doctors refer you to specialists. But there can be a circumstance where no person in the country is prepared to solve your problem without doing any homework simply from the working knowledge they have. And that's what I've run into. If you assumed that each doctor was capable of solving 90% of the problems in, con, that confront them, that would mean one person out of 10 leaves with no solution. I've realized that I will always be in that 10%. And so 
you could see very quickly that if the first doctor could solve 90 problems and referred you to the second doctor and she could solve 90 problems, that very quickly there would be very few problems left, but there would always be some. And, you know, the truth isn't that people solve 90% of problems at one crack, that they just show up, know exactly what to do. There's a lot of trial and error in medicine based on what has succeeded with other people. And you're being referred around. So just one of the biggest problems is that doctors don't generally do homework on individual patients, which means that every doctor is a contestant on Jeopardy. You walk in they're greeting you as they are, and they either know the answer to the problem you're presenting them with or they don't. And if they don't, they often refer you. They do a little bit better of looking up drugs or looking things up or now, but in general, with the time constraints and the job of a doctor, the doctor is not supposed to get lost on a meandering journey thinking about one patient when there's an entire waiting room full of people who are very sick and need help. So the constraints of modern medicine are also some of its pluses, that it can see a lot of patients, that it provides a solid standard of care in general. If I break my foot, I don't need someone to invent something new. I just need someone to fix it. But if you're a complicated patient and you've seen doctors and you've realized that you're walking into appointments and leaving with doctors who are confused or didn't know the answer, then you need to pull back and realize that there's a chance that the office visit as it stands and referrals to specialists, that this standard process may never yield a thorough answer for you. And then you have to think about what do we do next. It strikes me in listening to you, Doug, that you and I have both built our careers on that 10%, you know, the the one out of 10, you were the one out of 10, and I want to help the one out of 10. And also, you're saying that patients need to advocate for themselves, they need to research for themselves. What advice do you have for patients suffering from complex problems other than that, when they're trying to navigate their own recovery? Yeah. So there's certainly a smug saying that goes around medicine sometimes. I've even seen it on mugs. You know, your Google search is not equivalent to my medical degree. I hate that saying. You know, when I was confronted with that, I answered with, you know, the the simplest answer I have. And it's an old Chinese proverb. And it's that the faintest ink is better than the best memory. <laughs> the chance that someone remembers the totality of all they learned from medical school and training and has forgotten nothing. I mean, if you put an algebra test in front of me right now, the chances I would get 100% on that test are very slim, even though I, I aced algebra and did just fine in high school. And I think one of the things patients need to be empowered to do is to search out their own information. But then you're left to say what constitutes credible information. I think that the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic have very good public-facing information sites. So does the National Institutes of Health's Medline Plus. So does our friends at the National Organization of Rare Disorders, NORD, the Rare Disease Foundation. They have lists of all sorts of things. But I guess then the patient is charged with partnering with whoever they approach. And frankly, this is where presenting information as a question rather than either a claim or an accusation is sometimes very helpful. Because questions require some form of an answer. You may not get it. 
but they beg an answer. And so you say, you know, I ran across this on Medline Plus, and it fits many of the symptoms that I have. And how is this the same or different than what I'm suffering from? Enables your healthcare provider to face the information in front of them and size it up a bit, rather than challenging them saying, I read on the internet what's wrong with me, and now your job is to have your judgment subordinated to the homework I've already done. If you say that, no doctor is willing to do that, because they go through training, whether it's chiropractic school, whether it's, you know, a doctorate of physical therapy at some point that, you know, whether it's somebody who's an MD, PhD, whether it's an osteopath or an MD, all of these folks go through clinical training so that they develop a clinical sense of how to help people and how to make decisions. So if you come in with information, presenting it as how is this similar or different than what I'm suffering from, gives the doctor a chance to have the light bulb go on in their head. And that's better than showing up and saying, you know, and showing up at a restaurant and sort of ordering a dish that isn't on their menu, saying, I saw this on the Food Network and and I'd sure like to eat it. And they say, that's not what we do here, you know. So that helps. And yeah, I mean, when you're in that 10%, so framing things as a question invites a partnership rather than than makes it sound like you're asking them to set their judgment aside. Because there's there's two things I've learned in this world, is that if you tell a doctor what to do, there are many who will do anything but that. It's the same as with the journalist. These are two professions that, that operate under a code of ethics and that have a fierce independence. And if they feel that independence being threatened, they, they worry that it jeopardizes their objectivity to practice their healing art as they see fit, and they really reject it. And they don't have the words to put into. It happens quickly. It's almost like somebody asking you to do something you're not allowed to do at work, and they just have a a, a viscerally negative reaction. And so if you tell a reporter that this would make a great story, they will write anything other than that. And if you tell a doctor sometimes, they they will also bristle or rebel. And so asking some questions about how your condition is similar or different to this condition we found online invites a partnership and invites, uh, you know, uh, an exploration, which is still a challenge if you're time constrained. And I know some of the folks that come to see you come for 16 weeks, which is very different than 15 minutes, you know, but, but within the medical system, still a question invites uh, thought and partnership rather than one person telling another what to do. I think that's very wise advice. Thank you. Uh, you obviously have used science to your own advantage for your own recovery. Do you also believe that the human body has the power to heal itself with the right support? And then a second part to that question, have you seen miracles in your line of work? Yeah. So I don't necessarily need to draw a line between science and miracles. The body's workings are miraculous to me, and understanding how the body works doesn't make it less miraculous. It makes it more. You know, 
sometimes they describe a helicopter as 5,000 parts f- f- traveling in close formation. Because, you know, you can build a paper airplane and toss it across a room and it, it floats on the air and lands. A helicopter is not a stable thing. It's a hot water heater with a ceiling fan on top. And it's a miracle that helicopters fly. Well, when you understand how, how much can go wrong with the body, you sometimes think it's a miracle that anyone's healthy because something absent or present in the microgram concentration can be the difference between disease and wellness. And a microgram is, is a thousandth of a milligram, you know, and, and a Tylenol is 500 milligrams. So just, you know, while we're putting it in, in perspective. And so what medicine does a lot of times is take a whack at what's making someone sick, but the healing is done by the body. And antibiotics don't build anything. You know, they're very effective in, in, at times in stopping the reproduction of a bacteria, but the healing occurs by the body. You know, this is, it's the body that carries the football across the finish line, and sometimes it's medicine that takes the defense out of the way and lets you heal, that removes an illness or a disease. Chemotherapy heals nothing. But if you get a cut on your finger, you know, the neosporin might stop it from getting infected, but it's the body that does the healing. And so the body's doing the healing in all the cases. And that's a humbling thing to remember is that we, medicine to me is at its best when it is able to do something that's limited and discreet and then allows physiology to work as it's intended and, and to heal. And so that's sort of, you know, if someone is missing iron, giving them iron can, can be a remedy. If someone has not enough thyroid hormone or they have a selenium deficiency, if they take thyroid hormone, their life will get better. And this is a single input or, or something that's, that's humble and specific but doesn't require you to try and take over control of all the body systems. And, you know, there, there appear now to be impediments to healing that in, in just modern culture, you know, we have, we have developed innumerable chemicals and, and developed innumerable, you know, compounds and and substances. The world we have looks not a lot like the natural world of, you know, 5,000 years ago. Everything I touch has, has a manufactured quality to it. And most of that is just fine. But for some people and in some situations, things can impede healing. You know, people can be sensitive to smells that weren't chemicals thousands of years ago. You know, so the body does the healing. And our task is to facilitate the healing by either removing what's in the way or fighting a disease or something. But, but understanding that if healing occurs, it will be because the body is, is operating as it intends. See, here's the thing. A 20-year-old car is, an, is, is considered a classic, an antique, and a 20-year-old person is considered young, healthy, and in their prime. And the difference is, is that cars don't fix themselves, and the body heals itself. So this is really important to remember, is that, you know, that's the difference. A 20-year-old car is old because Anything that gets worse on a car must be fixed by human hands or it won't heal itself. Whereas in the human body, if you get a cut, if you get something else, if something happens, the body is healing and regenerating itself. And then 
I mean, I'm certainly a miracle, and I believe that thoroughly. I'm, when you looked at, there was no point in my life until very recently where you could sit down with a ruler and look at the trajectory of my life and, and draw out towards the future and get anything other than a very scary future. And I had to live with that for a very long time where basically if things went as they were going, then that would be tough and it would be bleak. And the challenge was to understand what hope is and then understand how to work towards that. And so I looked around and I needed something that was unshakable. Because if you build yourself on false hopes, you will find a day when those crumble and you will be in crisis. And for me, hope is the belief that something positive can happen. And that is something that you can truly believe in any circumstance, that something positive can happen. And hope doesn't have to mean that you will solve your problems or that you will find an answer. Someone else can find an answer. But it also doesn't mean that someone else will find an answer. Hope is the belief that something positive can happen. And that can be a social connection, a friend, you know, connecting with a loved one. It can be, you know, an easing of symptoms for a while while you're, you know, still struggling. It doesn't have to be a final victory in which you are a, a perfectly healed, fit body. And, and so... I'm a miracle because I'm still held together with duct tape. I take eight medicines a day. I chose them and they're helpful, you know, but, you know, I run on a, a physiology that requires help to keep going. But, you know, even after the surgeries, but for someone to find an animal model of surgery that was 90 years old and build a medical team and have that change their life and develop new uses for five old meds. My aunt is healthier in her 70s than she was in her 30s because of these meds. You know, my mom was given six months to live and lived another eight years based on a treatment that I came up with for her. Just my family is certainly evidence that miracles can happen, but you have to be willing to live them and see them. My mom was still very sick. And that's, that's very hard. And so what was important about hope and what's important about joy is that these can coexist in times of suffering. If your definition of happiness is, is you know, pursuing your dreams and, and, you know, a sort of ease or homeostasis, you can have a hard life if you're sick. You know, a lot of definitions of happiness are dependent on circumstance going well. But joy is a kind of happiness that you can access even in hard times. And hope is something you can access even in hard times. And sometimes hard times feel like all you have. So those are really powerful tools. But when, and when it comes to miracles, I mean, miracles sometimes take time. You know, I wrote something that was called The Long Slow Miracle, which was about my recovery. Because it, it took four years, really, for everything to settle out, for the second surgery and medications to get adjusted. But it was, it was a miracle in process. The first surgery was miraculous. You know, on the day of the surgery, I could walk 50 feet. 60 days after the surgery, I could walk more than a mile. That's astounding. You know, the second surgery was a lot harder to harness and manage. And, but, but people getting diagnosed after a long time. If you talk to my aunt, that's where she starts. She starts with, Douglas found out what was wrong with us, and so people didn't think we were crazy anymore. 
she doesn't start with, I'm in my seventies and I can sit on an exercise bike, which is something I couldn't do at 40. You know, she doesn't start with, you know, with, with all of the things she can do. She starts with understanding because that was really important to her to, to have, to understand what her disease was and, and to, to have that credibly, you know, adopted and, and, and be able to share that with people. This is what's going on. And so, you know, miracles happen in all sorts of sizes. And we, we hope to be the kind of people that see them and appreciate them when they come. And, but just because there's a miracle doesn't mean that life is perpetually easy afterwards. So that was one of the biggest things I did when I was sick as I prepared myself to say, hey, if I ever get my health back, life is still going to be hard. I don't know how it's going to be hard, but it will. And that was important because that helps me avoid a letdown of saying, I got my health back to a significant degree. I can do all sorts of stuff and I'll be darned if life still isn't hard. And so that was really important is to understand that you can get your miracle and life can still be hard because, you know, life is frustrating. Traffic is real. You know, mix-ups occur. Everybody gets the flu sometimes. You know, you can have setbacks. So to appreciate miracles is to be willing to accept positive things happening. But yes, miracles certainly happen. And there are people who, the, the, one of the things people need to realize is that if you ever hear one of these doctors say, I, heard, I had somebody tell me just last week, the doctor told them that, that, that the condition they have has, 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 you know, messed up their brain and they will never, it will never come back. And this is a preposterous thing. There's, they don't have anything to point to. You know, when someone says you'll never walk again, surgeons often don't see patients for years. You know, a lot of the proclamations from doctors are aimed at being helpful, but sometimes they are deflating. And the truth is we have to proceed with humility because we don't know every app in the app store. We don't know every tool in the hardware store. We don't know every treatment that's ever been tried and we don't know what hasn't been developed yet. So there's a lot of hope for people in what's coming and in already what is that we may not have yet discovered. Whenever someone makes a statement that is very defeating and very closed, the truth is they would have more trouble supporting it than an attitude that says, I'm not sure what's coming down the pipe. Because there was a time when your phones weren't magic, when they weren't at gateways to the internet, when they weren't video cameras, when they weren't, you know, there was a time when, when medicines, you know, when you couldn't get a vaccine that fights cancer. Like that, there's a, it's, we need to understand that miracles are occurring every day and people can get theirs. It's not a guarantee and it's not a guarantee life will be easy, but there's a lot of miraculousness in modern life and, and not all of it's science-based. I think that was a beautiful answer and there is so much wisdom in your words today and really interwoven with this journey that you've walked. I am in awe of what you're doing for other people, Doug, and thank you for sharing with my audience today. It was an honor. I'm ending with a Japanese proverb today. Fall seven times and stand up eight. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
We are excited about every new person we are able to reach. It is our most sincere hope that our podcast will bring hope to many. If you or someone you love is suffering from chronic pain, please don't lose hope. Visit our website at www.thespiroclinic.com for more information and stories of hope. That's www.thespiroclinic.com for more information and stories of hope.